The scripture reading today is Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 26. Romans 9, verses 1 through 26. This is the word of the Lord. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or evil, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the elder will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. 
And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. Chapter 1 and verses 1 to 2 for the sermon text. 1 Peter 1 and verses 1 and 2. This is the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are, are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Thus far the reading of God's word, let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we gather now around your word and we ask you to please cast a light upon it in our hearts. We ask the Lord that you would increase our understanding, to be sure, but you would also increase our obedience unto Christ. We pray these things for your glory and our good. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, if the Lord wills, occasionally I will be coming down again to cover for Pastor Joe as we try to make up uh, the gap to fill the breach, as it were, down in Waco. So we may begin working through First Peter as a book together. And this epistle is rather short. But it's full of truths that are useful to the Christian's who are in this world as on a pilgrimage. Christians who are being persecuted. But it's also useful to Christians who are just finding it difficult to follow Christ in this world. This epistle is very useful to all Christians of all times then. Because the Christian is a person with a dual citizenship. He's a citizen of, the, of a kingdom of this world, but he's also a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And as such, a Christian can easily lose sight of his or her identity. We live in a community with unbelievers. We work with them. We often share their concerns and often share their amusements with them. This reality can be a two-edged sword. On the one hand, we can find more common ground with unbelievers. The more our lives resemble theirs. And this can be useful for op opening doors so as to introduce Christ to them. But on the other hand, we can, through a slow progression of making little compromises, become so much like worldlings that we can begin to lose our distinctiveness as Christians. We can become salt that has lost its saltiness. So the first epistle of Peter was written to Christians living just in such an environment as ours. It was written to remind Christians living in a pagan culture of who they are and of what they must do to remain who they are in a world filled with trials and with constant temptations to ungodliness and to conformity to this present evil age. Now, the letter was probably written in the mid-60s, that's not the 1960s, of course, during the reign of the infamous Nero. 
Emperor Nero. And the immediate recipients of the letter were largely converts to Christianity from the Gentiles. And that's clear from several places in the letter, as we will see, if the Lord wills, in future sermons. And this epistle is more or less divided up into three main sections, each of which seems to be denominated by one major theme. The first section theme, section's theme is that Christians are God's chosen people, elected unto a high div- divine purpose. The second section is an exhortation to be holy in the midst of an ungodly and pagan world. And it kind of resembles a how-to manual for living a life of obedience to God in a culture that doesn't care to acknowledge or obey their creator. And the third and final section is about taking up our cross and following after Christ's pattern of life, submitting to share in his sufferings so as to share in his glory. So let's begin our, begin our study of 1 Peter together. Let's look at this language at the very beginning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now Peter here begins his letter in the conventional Greco-Roman way. He identifies himself. He hereby identifies himself by his personal name, naturally enough, but also by referring to his office right off the bat. He refers to himself as an apostle. You may know this, but the word apostle in the Greek merely means one sent, a sent one, an authorized messenger. (laughs) Jesus is called himself an apostle at Hebrews 3.1 in the sense that he was a special covenantal messenger sent by his father. This messenger of the new covenant, our Lord Jesus, likewise sent out men, authorized messengers, chosen, personally, in person by Christ himself, to share in a special way with his ministry. At Mark 3.14, the Greek text makes it plain that Jesus chose these men, whom he named apostles, to be with him, is the language that was used, to be with him and to preach. This language, to be with him, is not meant to communicate the idea of keeping him company, as if their purpose were solely to fulfill some personal need for fellowship. Rather, these men were to enjoy a peculiar and a special, a unique connection to Jesus' mission. We can't lose sight of that. Their office is not repeatable, and it cannot be performed by any person in the church today. The role of the apostles in the church was to lay its foundation. Their job as apostles was to lay the foundation of the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, that Jesus Christ is the only foundation of the church, that no man can lay any other foundation than Christ. And yet this same apostle, he writes in Ephesians 2.20, that the church is built upon the one foundation of Christ and the apostles and prophets. This shows a unique tie between Christ and his apostles. But it also shows how the office and function of the apostleship died with the apostle John, the last of the apostles to die according to tradition. 
It is because the apostles are a part of the foundation of the church that we can know that their office was special and it was temporary. The foundation of any structure, beloved, is not continually laid. A foundation is not continually built. But a foundation is laid once. And as Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 3, others simply build upon that foundation, that apostolic foundation. A man therefore cannot be an apostle today, or a prophet in the sense that Paul was using it in Ephesians 2. Because these offices were, we are told, the foundation of the church, which was laid once and for all in the first century of this administration of the one covenant of grace. A Christian can no more lay claim to be an apostle today than he could claim to be the Christ. Their office and role was unique and temporary and was connected to the earthly ministry of Christ in a unique way. What of their work remains, that of planting churches, preaching the word, and administering the sacraments, has been entrusted to, or by the temporary apostolate, you could say, to the permanent presbytery, the offices of pastor and teacher. This temporary foundation laying role of the apostleship, this has handed over a tradition of Christ's command. Christ's commands and his teachings are handed over to us as a sacred tradition from the apostles who got these things from Christ. So these things are handed over from the foundation-laying office of the apostle to the church-building offices of pastors and teachers, etc. The pastoral epistles of Paul make this plain. The apostles, when they died, handed the church, whose foundations they had laid, over to the permanent care of elders or bishops. Elders and bishops are convertible terms in the New Testament. The presbytery, that is the eldership, was established in the churches founded by the apostles, and the criteria for those offices are primarily laid out in the letters to Timothy and Titus, who were themselves ministers of the word. So Peter, in identifying himself as an apostle, is therefore communicating to these churches in Asia Minor that is, to the churches in, in what we now call modern-day Turkey. Peter's asserting his unique authority here, his unique apostle's authority to shepherd and to govern and to guide any church anywhere. While those men who are simply elders, whether ministers or ruling elders, these have authority only over a given congregation, a single congregation. The apostles were elders, who had authority over each and every church, everywhere, anywhere, at any time. Peter begins this letter, as Paul customarily did, with this necessary assertion of his unique Christ-granted authority to exercise authority over far-flung congregations. And in this way, like Paul, Peter exalts not himself, but his office. As Paul wrote, I exalt my ministry. I stand here before you today as one representative of the presbytery to convey to you the apostles' directives, to hand over to you their tradition, their deposit, as it's put in the Latin version, their deposit for the church of all time. 
Receive, therefore, the apostles' words today, as did the congregations of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia. Let's move on now to consider this language. To the elect exiles of the dispersion. To the elect exiles of the dispersion. With this expression, elect exiles, Peter broaches his first major theme in this letter. The churches, believers in Jesus Christ, are God's elect. They are his chosen ones. That is who you are, beloved. You are God's elect if you are true believers in Jesus Christ. Communicant members in good standing in the visible church, because they have made a credible profession of faith in Christ, are presumed to be God's elect. So this epistle is directed to you as individuals as well. But note how Peter identifies you further. He calls the churches, he calls Christians, exiles of the dispersion. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have ever heard the expression diaspora? Diaspora. It's occasionally used, and this term, as it is used in popular culture today, refers to ethnic Jews spread around the world. Jews outside of Judea, as it were. That's what the term diaspora means in our day, as it's conventionally or typically used. But here in the New Testament, an apostle uses the term in reference to Christians. Christians just like you. Christians living in a kind of exile, separated from their heavenly home. The term was also used of national Israel in the Old Testament. Turn with me to Psalm 147. Psalm 147. Psalm 147 and verse 2. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts. In, in the ESV, he gathers the outcasts of Israel. This word outcasts in the, is in the Septuagint the same word that Peter uses here, diaspora. What is the Septuagint, you might ask? The Septuagint is an old translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. It was made a few centuries before Christ, give or take, and it was the most popular version of the Old Testament. Even most popular version of the Old Testament with Jews in the first century, including the apostles. They quote from it more often than the Hebrew text. So the same way that we translate today the Hebrew Old Testament into English, in the third century BC, Jews translated it into Greek. And they did it to accommodate the many thousands of Jews who by that time for the most part, could read and speak Greek better than they could Hebrew. And they called this translation of the Greek Old Testament into, or excuse me, the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, largely for the use of Jews as the Septuagint. So the Apostle Peter, he takes this Greek word, diaspora, which in that psalm was applied to ethnic Jews living in exile from the land of Canaan, and he applies it to Christians living around the world of the apostles' own day in a kind of exile from heaven. 
Christians then, according to the Apostle Peter, are the people we should think of as God's chosen people. And according to Peter, uh, Peter, Christians are also, for the New Testament era, what Israel was in the Old Testament era. Christians are the exiles of the diaspora. Now let's consider this other language here. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The phrase according to the foreknowledge of God the Father is to be connected with the term elect, even though it's separated by a few words. The elect then are those chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. But what does it mean when we say that we are chosen according to God's foreknowledge? Foreknowledge can apply in a certain sense that we could use that term to God's mental awareness of what will happen in his universe because after all, God is omniscient, that is, he is all-knowing. But is that what Peter is getting at here when he's talking, when he says that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God? Does Peter mean that God is looking down the corridors of time to foresee something? And then according to what he sees, he chooses this person or that person. And many people think so, that this verse means that. Many Christians think that God's election is based upon his foreknowing that they will choose Jesus Christ. Since God foresees a choice for Christ, some think, since he foresees it, his election must be based on it, based on that knowledge. But this interpretation that Peter is saying here, that God chooses those he foresees choose him, is beset by several problems. First, Peter never mentions anything about human free will decisions here either for or against Jesus Christ. If you want that idea to be there, you have to put it there. You have to read it into that verse yourself. And that's bad practice in biblical interpretation. That's called eisegesis, putting meaning into a text rather than taking meaning from the text, which is called exegesis. Second, When the Apostle Paul explicitly describes the relationship, don't lose sight of this, we saw this earlier, when the Apostle Paul explicitly describes the relationship between God's election and man's will at Romans 9.16, he clearly says that God's election is not according to the man who wills. So Peter cannot imply what Paul explicitly says rejects. Peter cannot mean that God's election is according to the will of man when Paul says that God's election is not according to the will of man. The third problem with thinking that for Peter, God's foreknowledge means God's awareness of human decisions is that Peter isn't using the term foreknowledge in in such a way later on in this same chapter of his epistle. Look at verse 20 of chapter 1. Referring to Christ, Peter writes, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Jesus Christ, Peter tells us, was foreknown before the foundations of the earth. 
If foreknowledge means for Peter, God's awareness of human decisions. This would mean that Jesus of Nazareth's decisions are what prompted the Father to choose him to be the Messiah. But we know that Jesus' sinlessness and perfect righteousness were owing to things that took place before he was born, according to the flesh. The Holy Spirit descended upon Mary while she was still a virgin and caused Jesus of Nazareth to be miraculously conceived within her. Jesus' sinlessness, that is his perfect later willing and doing. These things were due to his divinity and his special conception, which not only made Jesus to be both God and man, but also made him to be born without original sin. How can Jesus be made the Messiah by a foreknowledge that merely witnessed his free will choices when those later perfect choices were due to divine acts performed before he was ever born into this world? Our triune God's plan produced the sinless Jesus. It did not observe a sinless, righteous Nazarene making these choices and then, because the Father foresaw that, decide to make this mortal into Jesus, the Messiah. No, foreknowledge does not mean God's awareness of what will happen. Rather, God's foreknowledge is his foreknowing in a certain sense. That is, his foredeciding what shall happen. Turn with me to another uh, bit of Peter's thought here. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. Acts 2.23. We'll start at 22. 22 and 23 of Acts 2. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here is the same apostle, Peter, in his famous Pentecost sermon, and he uses the same word about God's bringing about, not merely witnessing or foreseeing the crucifixion of Christ. The Greek grammar here links both of the words foreknowledge and plan to the word in the ESV translated as definite. The Greek word translated as definite by the ESV is translated by the KJV as determinate. That word is also translated by the New American Standard Version as predetermined. The Greek word translated in these ways is a participle of the verb horizo, and it means to decide, to determine, to appoint. The foreknowledge, therefore, as well as the plan, is linked grammatically to this idea of predetermination, this idea of a prior decision, of prior appointment. So foreknowledge for Peter here in this sermon It's not a passive, divine observation of human events in history. This idea, this understanding that Peter has of this term foreknowledge in all these places 
also perfectly agrees with Paul's use of the same word at Romans 8.29 and Romans 11.12. Do consult those verses later to see how Paul uses that same word from the Greek. 8.29 of Romans, 11.2 of Romans. This kind of foreknowledge is something like you foreknew that you would come to church this, this morning. It's not that you peered into the future and observed yourself sitting in these pews. Rather, it was the settled decision ahead of time to come to church today. That's what would be meant if we were going to use the word foreknow the way that Peter is using it. Foreknowledge is like a settled plan in one's mind to do something in the future. It is in your mind's deciding to do something that you can be said to have foreknown that you came to church today. That you could be said to be to have foreknown in the same sense that Peter uses that term. God, beloved, he foreknows because he has decreed. He does not decree because he foreknows. He does not decide to give us a Messiah because he foresaw a sinless man die at the hand of sinners. He gave us a Messiah by means of his predeterminate plan and predeterminate foreknowledge. And it is because of this active, determining foreknowledge that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and the, in the womb of the Virgin Mary and lived a sinless life for our sake. And we who are not, we also are not God's elect because he foresaw what we would do. His settled decision beforehand to place us in Christ before we were ever born is what is meant by his foreknowing it. He knew it before because he had decided it before. And as Peter's traveling secretary, known to us as the writer of the Gospel of Mark, as he put it at chapter 13 and verse 20 of his Gospel, the elect are not those who chose God, the elect are defined there simply as those whom God chose. We are chosen, as was ancient Israel, not because of something God saw in us, but because he decided to choose us to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's now conclude and apply by considering this language for obedience to Jesus Christ. This election by God's settled decision in eternity past has a purpose. It has a practical effect. It is that we who are chosen in Jesus Christ will be obedient to Jesus Christ. To be God's chosen sons and daughters and adopted fellow heirs with his beloved son is a high privilege. But it is not a privilege without any corresponding duties. Peter likes to compare in this letter the Christian in his journey to heaven to the Israelites of old, who being delivered from bondage in Egypt must wander in the wilderness before they come to the promised land. But like the Israelites, we who have been graciously redeemed from slavery are, after our deliverance, we are given commands to follow. And as Peter puts it, we are given priestly duties to perform. The apostle intends in later passages of this letter to inform the churches 
what some of those divinely appointed duties and obligations are. But let us today be mindful of some of our, our, our Lord's own words about this. Remember how he repeatedly told us in the Gospels that we prove our gracious union with him by our willing obedience to him. At John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. At John 15, 14, he says, If you are my friends, you will do what I command you. And recall, too, the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel, and how the apostles are charged with preaching the good news to all nations, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. Strangely, the obedience to his command part escapes the attention of most when considering the Great Commission. As Paul put it in Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We have been chosen that we may be holy and blameless. As we walk out our temporary exile here in this world, let we who have been thus graciously chosen and redeemed walk in a manner that is both holy and blameless, and so prove our love unto him who has graciously saved us, and so prove ourselves to be Christ's friends. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, our glorious God and King, we praise you and thank you for this glorious plan of redemption, which includes not only our salvation, but our being declared in Christ to be heirs, to be heirs of all of your creation, but above all, to be heirs of you. Help us, O Lord, to understand, even in part, the magnitude of your goodness unto us in Christ, what you've accomplished in our redemption, and how we have been redeemed to the, to the obedience of Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.